Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Rachna Schoenberg, finance editor at The Economist, and this week, the new age of venture capital. The business of funding startups is booming and is itself being disrupted by a flood of both new capital and new competition. Venture capital is no longer embodied by Silicon Valley investing in its own backyard. It is powering up-and-coming ideas across sectors and around the world. And though all this investment brings its own risks, it holds the promise of ushering in a new wave of global innovation. Venture capital has been one of the catalysts for American innovation over the past few decades. It's helped fuel the rise of household names like Apple, Google and more recently Moderna. And the concentration of VC in and around Silicon Valley has helped America hang on to its technological dominance. Although less than half a percent of American companies created every year are VC-backed, they represent more than three-quarters of the total public market capitalisation of firms started since 1995. And as much as venture capital has changed the world already, it's only just getting started. Arjun Romani from our finance and economics team has been talking to everyone who's anyone in the world of VC. Welcome, Arjun. Thanks for having me, Rajna. Yeah, it's been a, a busy past few weeks. I've been talking to, as much as possible, everyone who has a, a major role in this industry. Um, so the biggest players, including partners at Sequoia Capital, Andreessen Horowitz, Founders Fund, and newer players who are kind of taking different approaches to venture investing, like Neo VC and 8VC, which just moved from San Francisco to Austin. And also uh, a lot of founders, of course, from all over uh, the world and also different industries trying to capture kind of a comprehensive look at what's happening. And what is happening? What's changing? What's become clear is that 2021 is really a, a watershed moment for the industry. It's kind of revolutionized how capital is being deployed, who it's going to, where it's going, and I think it's a, kind of a profound moment for the industry that will shape the next generation of companies and innovation yet to come. So Arjun, let's start with how venture capital used to work. Where did it come from? Yeah, so venture capital has been around in, in, in various forms throughout, throughout history, really. You can think about whaling companies where something kind of like an equity stake was taken out of them by their early investors. But the moment in which something like its modern form originated was in the 1960s, Fairchild Semiconductor, which was this uh, firm in the Silicon Valley. Three of their, their employees, Arthur Rock, Don Valentine, Eugene Kleiner, they left Fairchild for investing. And they just realized that so many of the companies that they were selling semiconductors to had needs for financing that weren't being met. Kleiner and Valentine started Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia Capital, which are still household names in the Valley today. What was the kind of original model? 
the core role of the venture capitalist was to venture out into the unknown and take a bet on a company that was incredibly early stage, possibly without any revenue, and give them money in exchange for an ownership share in the company, and then offer them advice. The industry has certainly evolved over time. It now supports later stage companies, offices have opened abroad, VCs now offer a whole suite of services to, to founders, really. And its impact on the world has been enormous. But it's been accused of certain uh, limitations. So perhaps they focus too much on software companies based out of Silicon Valley. They perhaps scale too fast. But I think the, the industry is going through a, a moment of disruption right now. There, there's more money. Uh, a lot more of it. There's new players. It's more international and it's finally exploring new sectors. Now, when you say there's more money, how much money are we talking about here? And just how different is it for a founder looking for venture support today compared with a few years ago? Yeah, it's massively different. And this is uh, something that came up from everyone I talked to, really. Venture activity this year is set to be close to $600 billion worldwide, uh, which is 50% more than last year, which was already a record. 10 times more than a decade ago, and 20 times more than it was in 2002. So to get a sense of how this difference is really shaping out, I spoke to a number of founders across the world and across industries, including Rachel Delacour, who co-founded Sweep, which is a, a green tech company, a software platform enabling other companies to track and manage their emissions. It just raised a large $5 million seed state valuation. And she said it's a very different world from when she started her first company just a, a decade ago. I'm in the category of uh, repeat tech entrepreneur. I've started my first company in 2009, and we were providing a cloud business intelligence uh, platform by this time. We've been acquired by uh, Zendesk in 2015, but it took time, you know, a seed and then a Series A. And uh, this Series A, you know, we were celebrating it in 2013. It was 3 million euros. Wow, you know, Series A. When I see the, <laughs> the amount of seed even precede today, almost the same, it's crazy. Yes, in less than 10 years, if for European tech companies, the landscape has drastically changed. There is a, so many more VCs, just overall, so many more new VC funds. They are investing right now much more money, much more earlier in our journey. And she's not alone. So the average seed stage valuation for an American startup in 2021 is about five times its level in 2010. Arjun, why do venture capitalists have so much more cash to invest? So there are a couple of factors going on. So first, the, the VC industry is coming off a, a record boom of companies going public. And they've gone public at record valuations, which has really filled venture capitalists and investors' pockets with cash. They're looking right back at venture capital for the next round of, of spending money. Uh, and why has it done so well? Well, really for, for an entire decade, investors have been moving more and more money into, into venture capital. This is largely due to low interest rates across the world. So asset managers can no longer put their money in, in bonds and they have to move it in, uh, into earlier stage companies. But some VCs would disagree that that's what's really going on here. One of the people I talked to is Rulof Botha. He's been in the business since 2003 and is a partner at Sequoia Capital, where he leads its business both in the United States and Europe. I'd say the funding environment is not supply-driven, it's demand-driven. Accommodation from governments both in 2009 and during COVID obviously has an impact on global financial markets and global interest rates and supply of money. But what's far more important is the sheer bottoms-up innovation. That is the thing that we focus on. When I was at PayPal 20 years ago, there were 200 million people on the planet that had access to the internet, mostly on dial-up. 
Today, it's billions, and it's almost all high speed. The number of public billion-dollar tech companies when I joined Sequoia Capital was 368. This is in 2003, globally. Today, it's 1,200. It's increased threefold. The number of public tech companies worth over $10 billion has gone from 59 to 267. That's a fourfold increase. Technology is infusing so many different sectors and redefining so many sectors. And that's what's interesting. And that leads to funding to enable these businesses to come to be. So I think monetary policy probably has an effect on what the valuation levels are. Public asset prices have a cascading effect to private. But I don't think people start companies because of the availability of cash. (laughs) But what's really interesting this time around is that the type of investor piling into venture capital has changed just as dramatically. So surprisingly, so far this year, only three of the 10 biggest venture investors by asset center management have been the traditional VC firms that we think of. Uh, Instead, deals have been led by what we call non-traditional investors. This would include uh, entities like private equity shops, hedge funds, pension funds, and, and the like. And their activity is set to nearly double this year, which would be about 45% of global activity, up from about 20% in 2002. Here's Rulof Botha again. If you think about it, nature hates a vacuum. And so when returns are good in any asset class, additional capital should flow into that asset category. It was very hard to raise venture capital in 2002 because the returns were terrible in the 99 vintage. And so arguably, there was an underfunding of technology opportunities just as Web 2.0 commenced. And, and maybe now it's gone the other way. I don't know for sure because there's so much opportunity to be had. But when you have a high returning asset class, it's natural that people want to spend more money there. I mean, you have $16 trillion globally that are sitting with negative nominal yields. I mean, if you're, if you're a pension fund facing that situation, it's natural for you to try to find yield somewhere because you have liabilities that you have to meet. So I do think money will chase returns, but there's a big difference between transactional capital and business partnership, which is what we offer. One notable new investor in in the last several years is Tiger Global Management, which is called a crossover because it straddles the public and private markets. And they've really disrupted the industry, essentially moving faster than any other VC fund. For instance, that they've been known to come to meetings with a term sheet in hand, which basically means they're willing to make an investment within 10 minutes of, of meeting a founder. What does this flood of capital and this flurry of, of new interest mean for the types of ideas that are being funded? I think what's happening is because the new players have the ability to evaluate software companies in a way that they weren't before because there's just so much data out there and you don't even need financial information. The traditional bread and butter of venture is getting much, much more competitive. Some people would even say it's commoditized because it doesn't require the same unique skill that VCs are are known for. So what some of the traditional players are doing in response is they're broadening their focus to, to, to newer sectors that are less understood. For instance, Crypto is undergoing a boom. Green technology like Razor Delacour Sweep is, is a good example of this. Biotech is another example. So one founder I spoke to was Maria Hutsu Dunford. She runs LifeBit, which is a big data company working in genomics to improve drug discovery. She started in 2017. Um, in September, they raised a massive 60 million Series B round led by none other than Tiger Global. So I asked her to what extent she feels this inflow of resources has changed what it's like to operate a more R&D intensive company like your own. 
Uh, yes, 100%. There is much more money in the market right now. And also venture capitals play in a more international and global way. They have become easier to reach. They have become less risk of diverse to invest in companies that reside outside of US or if you like, outside of the major investment hubs across the world. And more importantly, what we are actually seeing is, let's say, non-traditional VCs working in, let's say, non-traditional VC ways, actually coming into the market and setting new standards on how VC investment works. It's really interesting to me that, uh, you know, you, you, were, uh, you received funding from Tiger as they've, they've obviously made a really big name for themselves with their global activity. On one hand, though, it seems like they kind of take a little bit more of a hands-off approach. They don't take board seats, maybe provide less advice to companies. Was that a consideration when you accepted uh, an investment from them? How, how has it been working with Tiger and generally what was the funding process like for you? It was a very fast funding process. We gave actually uh, two weeks as pre-engagement with different investors uh, to see if they would be interested in investing in the company or not. And then we ran another three weeks where we opened them our data room and we had the follow-up meetings to discuss more in detail to address effectively all of their questions around the company. And then uh, at the end of that three weeks, we were expecting a term sheet or, or not effectively. So... It was really great, the engagement with Tiger, because although Tiger came much later, came already when we had opened the data room to most of the investors, they moved very, very fast. We literally had um, almost two meetings with them. So the initial meeting and then a second deep dive meeting that lasted for a couple of hours, where, as I said, we walked them through the data room, we answered all of the questions. They, of course, had that material much uh, earlier. So they had obviously done their homework. And then after that, they uh, issued us the term sheet was the then the the kind of reason why you ended up going with tiger or the the way you thought about this they were just simply able to provide the most resources or were there any other considerations really for how you navigated that process there were two big considerations. The one consideration is exactly the one you pointed out. They were among the investors that provide us the most resources in order to reach our global expansion uh, goals and actually getting to more clients faster. And the second reason, to be honest, is that this might be just a, a personal point of view, but a lot of the investors that we're interacting and the more traditional way of, of investing involves quite a lot of emotional thinking and investors asking themselves, what does it, this mean to me? <laughs> and how do I feel about this? And how do I feel effectively about the risk that I'm taking? Where Tiger brings this new way of venture thinking that comes mainly from the investing in public markets and stock market. So it's very data-driven rather than emotional thinking about how do I feel about things? And we really like that. I personally really like that about Tiger. Arjun, it's really interesting that both of the founders that we've heard from, Rachel and Maria, based in Europe, even if they're operating globally and they're funded globally, how much of a geographical change is happening in the VC world? It's really massive. So 15 years ago, about 80% of venture dollars were concentrated in America, and the majority of those were really in Silicon Valley. Since then, things have massively changed. Now more than half of venture dollars are international. So I think it's really an exciting moment for a lot of people looking abroad. 
I think we are donning the golden age of European investing. And you know, that was enough to cause me and my family to make the move from Goldman to Balderton and from New York to London. So one of the biggest and most established VC firms in Europe is Balderton. I talked to Rana Yared, who is one of their partners, and just moved there last year, having run a fintech team in, in Goldman Sachs. I asked her what convinced her to make this shift. Some of it is just the passage of time. So the first vintage of you know, very substantial European companies were founded between 10 and 15 years ago. Those companies have had exits. They have created wealth and angels. Those angels have then reinvested in the ecosystem. And we now have, you know, what I'll term our own tribes here in, in Europe, groups of people collected in major cities where one of these, you know, early European successes was founded, now reinvesting in the ecosystem of that particular city. It is a couple decades behind what we saw in Silicon Valley, but it's actually the same exact phenomenon. And so now you have the Spotify tribe up in Stockholm. You know, we think we have our own go cardless and Revolut tribes in London. You know, there is a group around the rocket internet companies and Auto One and Zalando in Germany. And we've also seen the rise of fintech in Paris really as part of the repatriation of French nationals back to Paris as a direct result of, of Brexit. Really, I think what VCs are sensing is that there's just massive opportunity in new markets to both import ideas that have been tried and tested in America, but also there's a lot of frontier innovation going on. And you're also seeing both the newcomers to venture, like Tiger Global, and the big established American firms acting more globally and adapting as a result of these shifts. Thank you, Arjun. That's all really interesting. And we'll get more into what traditional venture capitalists are doing to stay ahead in this new world in just a moment. But first, dear listeners, we at Money Talks want to know more about you. How do you like to listen to us? What do you like to hear about on the show? What do you want more of and what could we be doing better? Well, now's your chance. We have a new listener survey at economist.com slash survey. That's economist.com slash survey. Please do take a look and tell us what you think. The link is in the show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Arjun, this brave new world of venture capital must be rather unsettling for some of the older guard. How are traditional VC firms reacting? Yeah, the traditional firms are being forced to adapt. So the older ones have been evolving over time, of course. They haven't been standing still, but the pace of change right now is really striking. And in some ways, the boundary between Central Road, where a lot of VCs in Silicon Valley cluster, and Wall Street is, is shifting. So I put this question to, to Rulof Botha of Sequoia. We need to react. And, you know, I think the ultimate beneficiary of all of this, by the way, are the founders, because it makes the industry more competitive. We have to be smarter, work faster, <laughs> uh, gain their confidence, outcompete others. And so, you know, in some sense, I love competition because it ultimately makes the world better and it makes everybody hungrier and more driven. You know, the invisible hand is at work. So that's a, good, a very good thing. We need to be more prepared than ever. 
One of the things that Sequoia is doing that is really interesting is they're extending their support to companies at much later stages in their evolution. So normally venture funds have a seven to 10 year timeline. So after investors put their money into startups, they have to go public or liquidate within a certain period of time. And then the VC fund will give their shares or cash back to their end investors. But Sequoia's new play, which is called the Sequoia Capital Fund, will allow them to avoid these types of arbitrary cutoffs. When we were involved with a company from the seed stage, from the time that Airbnb had three people, from the time that Natera had two founders, not a line of code, when the Stripe brothers came to us with an idea and they too had not written a line of code, we get involved at that early stage and we help these companies find product market fit, develop business models, recruit management teams, navigate crucible moments on the way to becoming an enduring business. Why should the IPO be an exit? We approach the IPO and they say, um, you're going to have to leave the board. But I've been involved with you for a decade, helping you build the business. Like, Why should I have to get off the board? Because the, the norm is that investors get off the boards and then distribute their shares. So we don't want to do that anymore. It's a we want to retain that association with our winning companies. We want to help them build even bigger. And we want a way to hold on to those shares because there's a lot of gain to be had. And our LPs are great causes. They're foundations, endowments, and nonprofits. We're doing them a disservice if we distribute too early. So when he says LP, he means limited partner, or the institutions like pension funds, endowments, and so forth, who put their money into venture capital funds. Do the traditional big VC firms have an advantage through sheer scale as well? Yeah, certainly. There are certain types of services that VCs provide increasingly that benefit from these economies of scale. So an example comes when I, when I talked to Ben Horowitz, uh, who co-founded Andreessen Horowitz. Um, they have a large network of contacts that they help founders with, for example, introducing them when they're looking for new customers or looking to hire important players in their, in their development. And they also offer a suite of services to companies ranging on all kinds of things like diversity and inclusion policy, crypto policy, marketing. Some VCs feel like they've been pretty immune to the shifts, actually. So for instance, Keith Raboy at Founders Fund says he's basically still bidding against the same small handful of leading VCs for startup investments. He's basically maintained the same model of investment over the past decade. But I think there's definitely a sense that you need to differentiate to stay relevant overall in the industry. Some are emphasizing the personal local touch that they bring over the data-driven approach of new entrants. Here's Rana Yared from Balderton again. I think that the speed of the deal has to be mitigated by the depth of relationships prior to the deal actually kicking off. And that's where I think we have just an immense advantage. All of my partners were themselves operators and in two cases, founders. So we can say to the entrepreneur that we have walked in your shoes. Europe is still a shoe leather business from the venture point of view. In the U.S., it is still the case that a great entrepreneur will take themselves to Sand Hill Road and University Avenue and make a stop in Union Square to call upon the key people that one needs to call upon. It's not the case in Europe that a great founder in Stuttgart is going to get up and come to us in London. We have to go to Stuttgart. And so as a result of that, we have people on the ground in the Nordics, in Berlin, in Paris, because you still have to go to the founder in Europe in a way that you don't in the U.S., 
And then, of course, you know, we have the benefit of having an extensive network of CEOs start to help each other. You know, so someone will post, hi, I'm a Series A company. Here's what I want to, like, do in sales. What are the best practices? And just a few weeks ago, that individual got three multi-page responses from CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies giving her very detailed examples of like what worked and what didn't, what to think about, et cetera. So nurturing that community broadly, I think, is something that we also bring to the table as an investor. So there's clearly a lot to like in this shift to the new VC world. And it's hard to argue that more money for innovation is a bad thing. But there must be risks here as well. And is one of them that founders might have too much power? You were certainly right to point out that there's been a shift in the balance of power to founders. They have much, much more leverage in negotiations now than at any point in time in history. So some founders were telling me that during the pandemic, the switch to, to remote enabled them to take 10 calls with VCs a day, uh, playing off bids against each other almost instantaneously. Investors would come to meetings willing to invest within 10 minutes of, of meeting a company, which really would never have been heard of a couple of years ago. Uh, But I don't think the founders would ever say they have too much, even in this uh, remarkable new world. So here's Rachel Delacour of Sweep again. I think that frustrated VCs maybe <laughs> maybe told you told you this, okay, or disappointed ones, or you know, it's just human after all. So okay, but uh, no, of course it's great. I'm on the side of the founders, and when you have a right the right ideas, the right setup from a team standpoint, the right skills, of course you have powers, and that's great. When you are partnering with a VC, you are part with a financial partners. It's uh, it's worse than a wedding, you know, you can't divorce. So, so, so you are partnering for life. And uh, it's not just about uh, showing the muscles, you know, about who is dominating uh, who. It's about uh, uh, an equal partners and it's for life and uh, for the life of your company. This idea of comparing the VC founder relationship to a marriage is uh, something that came up in a number of interviews. I spoke to Ali Partovi of NeoVC, um, which is a community of entrepreneurs and also a VC fund itself. You know, the relationship between a founder and an investor is a very long-term relationship. Yeah. 10 years plus, given IPOs being later. So that's longer than the average marriage in the <laughs> United States. Quite a bit longer. And so imagine if you had to choose who you're going to get married to over a two-day <laughs> two-day process where each person has an hour and you're just going with the highest bidder. That's not a healthy decision-making process. Love at first sight or shotgun wedding. (laughs) (laughs) So this is all great from a a founder's point of view, but there are issues that come uh, when you're choosing uh, someone likened to a spouse in a matter of hours to days. Uh, One is corporate governance. So over time, um, because founders have so much more power, they've been able to choose board members who are favorable to them and structure shares so they don't have to give up power as firms mature. As a result, there's been this emergence of what might be called a founder CEO, people like Adam Newman of WeWork or Travis Kalanick of Uber, who stay in power long past their welcome because of the new world. And is another problem with this new VC world, Audra, that there's just too much cash floating around that um, startups are becoming overvalued? So this was definitely a, a consistent concern that was brought up in many of my conversations. Keith Raboy, who's a, a partner at Founders Fund, basically told me that when you look at the average enterprise software company right now, they're looking at 40x multiples in terms of their valuation. So that's the ratio between 
how much they're worth and their next year's revenue. Historical norms are a lot closer to 10x. Um, so arguably those justify maybe that this is this kind of new world of, of VC and the laws of physics have changed. But he also says there was a strong case that this should really be regressed closer down to 20x and everything has been overpriced. But not everyone agrees with this. So Ben Horowitz, Andreessen Horowitz, argued that it's really better that too much stuff gets funded rather than really innovative, important companies uh, like Moderna don't get funded because they just have so much social benefit. I also think there's a sense that though people might be overpaying for some startups, that's outweighed by the opportunity. Here's Rana Yared of Balderton again. You know, an equal worry of mine is what I'll term like precision without accuracy. So by that, I mean, it would be precise to pay, you know, a hundred million for something. The going price is 120 million. Is that 20% too high? Yes. But do we think this is going to be a 10 billion company? Yes. So while it's imprecise to pay the 120, it is indeed accurate to do so because you're talking about a very substantial opportunity. And so it's a very delicate balance, but the market ebbs and flows. I'm sure there'll be like a local low, you know, off the high that we're currently in. But from a trajectory point of view, we're looking at increased digitization and technology usage, not the reverse. So there's an aspect of the venture boom that is cyclical. It reflects low interest rates and interest rates won't stay low forever. What do you think the future holds for the industry? I'd say the the first thing to start with is that you know, as I said, a lot of this has been driven by the, the funding environment, the low, the low interest rates, and the record amount of money sloshing around. So if markets tighten, which is not an unreasonable possibility, then it's possible that some of these new entrants and a lot of the cash coming in slows. But at the same token, venture has just outperformed most other major, major asset classes over the last decade. It's been the top performer in the last half decade. So I definitely think that a lot of these new players are going to stay, even if the funding environment shifts a bit. A consistent theme across people I spoke to is there's never been a better time in history to start a company, and now it's worldwide. It won't be as profitable for venture firms than the past generation of VC because of all these new entrants. But at the same time, because there's so much experimentation going on right now, right, new geographies, new types of companies, different sectors, it could be even more dynamic for innovation as a whole. Arjun Romani, thank you very much. Thank you. Our thanks to Roloff Botha, Rachel Delacour, Rana Yarid, Dr. Maria Hatsu-Dunford and Ali Partovi. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. If you're not yet a subscriber, there's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. That link and the link to the survey are in the show notes. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan, Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Shmoreli. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups... Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. 
Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.